0: and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right.
1: It's good to be with you this morning. If we haven't met, my name's is Jackson. Uh, I'm excited to be able to open God's word with you. And uh, before we get started, the classic, uh, I'm going to ask you guys just to make a little bit of room. So if you could, if there's room towards the center of the room, try to move towards the center so we can get people to uh, have a spot on the aisles. That would be wonderfully appreciated. So thank you. Ah, nailing it. Well done. Well, I want to tell you a little bit about one of the top three most miserable days in my entire life. So I had just moved. Southern California from Birmingham, Alabama, and you know, I was eager uh, as a new person, new town. I was 22 years old. I wanted to make some friends. I wanted to find a community, and so I started going to this church, and this group of people kind of came around me, and, uh, and they invited me to go on a hike, and I said, well, hey, tell me about the hike, and I said, it is is a couple mile hike through a wooded area. And I thought, a couple mile hike through a wooded area, that sounds like my speed. I think I can handle that. Um, you know, I'm interested in making friends. I-, I want robust community. And a couple mile hike, I mean, you know, that-, that sounds great. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. And so when I think of a couple mile hike, through a wooded area, I sort of just imagine, you know, walking along a stream in the woods, uh, maybe by the Chattahoochee, you know, you're like just walking and there's something nice to look at. And, you know, you're, you're talking and you're laughing, you're creating inside jokes, and it, it's just a great time. Well, um, suffice it to say, I did not understand what they meant by a couple mile hike through a wooded area. So the day came, I put on a sleeveless t-shirt. Uh, I put on some khaki cargo shorts and some Nike shocks. I grabbed my camera, a single plastic bottle of water, and a Nutrigrain bar and put it in my Jansport backpack. And I went off for the hike. And I found out pretty quickly that we weren't just doing a nice couple mile hike through the woods, we were actually climbing Mount Baldy, which is a 10,000 foot mountain in Southern California. It's an 11-mile hike, takes eight hours to do it, and you gain thousands and thousands of feet in elevation over the course of this hike. Um, This was, like, not playing at all, one of the worst days of my life. I got so sunburned that I had a scar on my back for two years. I was so dehydrated that... I thought I was going to just like pass out for the majority of the hike. I was so hungry. I was so frustrated. It was miserable. I know for some of you, you probably think hiking a 10,000 foot mountain in Southern California. Maybe that's your speed. Maybe you're really excited about that. But the highest point of elevation in the state of Alabama is 2,400 feet. It's just not, it's just not, that's not the way that Alabama people operate. And more than that, I wasn't mentally prepared for what I was asked to do. I, I, to this day, hold a grudge with these friends that they didn't prepare me better. But I thought we were going to hike through the woods with like no elevation change. But instead, I found myself on a giant mountain. And the the prevailing thought that comes to mind when I remember back to hiking Mount Baldy was over and over and over again, in, in my weariness, in my fatigue, me thinking, I don't think I'm going to make it. I don't think that I'm gonna be able to keep putting foot after foot after foot up this mountain to get to the top. I'm gonna to be that guy who's new to this church and new to this community who has to stop halfway and just like waits for people on the way down. Like I did not think I can do it. And so I sat there praying like, God, don't let me be this person who has to give up on this hike. Please just give me energy to keep going. And so I trudge and I trudge and I trudge. But then the worst part was I would trudge and I'd get to what I thought was the peak and it would turn out to be a false peak, meaning that it wasn't the end. There was still a lot more to go. And then false peak after false peak, it just wore me down at about every level. But eventually, dehydrated, sunburned, starving, frustrated, I got to the top. And it was not worth it. Um, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy the view. I sat on a rock with my head in my lap. I vowed to never go back to Mount Baldy again because I hated it. I continue to hate Mount Baldy. I never climbed it again. I'm okay with that. But I tell you this story because I believe that it says something of what Paul's concern is in Colossians chapter one. We just read what is... Without doubt, one of the most amazing passages in the entire Bible, not hyperbole, one of the gems of the New Testament, beautiful, high theology. But it's written with a concern in mind. It's not just theology for theology's sake. Paul isn't just waxing eloquent, he has a concern that he's seeking to address. And so, he, he, he wants to uh, address this concern, and we see what that concern is in verse 23. If you have your Bibles open, put your eyes on this. But, but Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, if indeed you continue in your faith, Paul's going to say some really awesome things about Jesus and some really incredible things that are true of those who trust in and follow after Jesus. But all of this stuff, according to Paul, is predicated on whether or not the Christians in Colossians continue in their faith. That's what Paul's concerned with. If you remember back last week to Colossians 1, the beginning of the the chapter, we see Paul's overjoyed because the gospel has come to this this church in Colossae. They've received the gospel. They have the hope of the gospel now. And so he's praying for them. He's celebrating with them. He's commending them. It's like he's saying, you did so good. I'm so happy for you. I'm so proud of you. And I'm gonna support you in prayer. But then we come to, to this section, to verse 23, And we see that Paul now desperately wants the Colossians to continue in the faith that was entrusted to them. Keep going. Keep putting foot after foot after foot You're gonna face false teachers, which is really common. Uh, uh, Paul's largely addressing uh, false teachings that are occurring in this region. You're gonna face passions of the flesh. You're gonna face discouragement. So much stuff is gonna come your way and you're gonna be tempted to stop. Keep going. That's what Paul wants to say to this church. Keep going. He's concerned about whether or not they will give up. And so what does he do? He gives them some incredible truths to ground their faith in, to ground their life in, to ground their world in, and to encourage them to continue going. Faith-fueling truths, the truths we just read. And so this morning, we're going to consider two things Two things that are meant not just to encourage the Colossians, but to encourage us to keep going, to get to the finish line, to get to the top of the mountain. One, Jesus is better than you can imagine. Jesus is better than you can imagine. He's better than you think that he is. And then two, because Jesus is better than we can imagine, our salvation is more costly than we can imagine. So that's where we're going to be this morning. If you would, pray with me. Father, we thank you that we can gather in the name of Jesus today to worship you, to enjoy you, to be filled up. And I pray that you would fill us up. And so give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear as we go to your word. May your spirit apply it to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Again, first thing we want to see this morning from our passage is that Jesus is better then you can imagine. So the passage we're looking at, and in particular verses 15 through 20, they tell us how awesome Jesus is. It's pretty simple. Jesus is amazing. These words are probably a mixture of a creed or a hymn and some of Paul's words for this particular church. And so in other words, this this. These five verses, these are words that the church rallied around and corporately proclaimed as true about Jesus. This was what united them. This is what encouraged them. This was the content of their worship and of their proclamation, community words. And I can't do these words justice. I can't begin to describe how wonderful these words are. Beautiful they're poetic, they're philosophic, they're world-orienting, they they make sense of reality. There's a reason why they're sung. There's a reason why they are recited. And each little phrase is worth parsing. And I would so encourage you uh, as you leave here to to turn over these various phrases. Spend time in them, meditate on them. Uh, Get them into your hearts. You will do well to do that. We don't have time to parse out every one of these phrases, but if you were to kind of take these phrases and take them as a whole, you realize that they're communicating a really important truth. And that is that Jesus is the high and exalted one. Jesus is the unique son of God. Jesus is better than anything we can imagine. So so what we're seeing here is is that Jesus is the point of Colossians 1. All of life, all of human existence, everything revolves around Jesus. He is the center. Do you remember what a superlative is by any chance? If you went back to school, getting that mindset, a superlative Superlatives are used to communicate that something is the best or the greatest. It's something that tells you that a thing exists in the highest relation to other things, in the highest degree in relationship to other things. So, um, Raylan and I, my wife, we went to Rumi's Kitchen a couple weeks ago for our anniversary dinner. And uh, never been to Rumi's, but went there, had chicken. And at the end of our dinner, I said, this is the best chicken I've ever had in my life. And, and later, my wife said, this is the tastiest hummus I've ever had in my life. Those are superlatives, right? So we're saying that this chicken stands above all of its peers. It's the best chicken in relationship to all other chicken. This hummus is the tastiest hummus in comparison to all other hummuses. It rises above all other hummus. It strikes me, that many of us, uh, and this is no longer true of me, but many of us are using superlatives all the time because of the unique position we are in at the beginning of the college football season. Many of us like to say things about our teams like, they're the best, they're the fastest, they're the strongest, they're the greatest, they're the most disciplined, they're the best coached, they're whatever. We very loosely throw around superlatives until we end up becoming disappointed, inevitably, that our team is not actually these things. But we're trying to communicate when we talk about our football teams in this particular part of the season is that our team stands above the rest. They're uniquely special. They're uniquely good. They're uniquely great. Well, those are superlatives. Well, what, what I want you to do now is, is look at Colossians 1:15 through 20, and notice the superlatives piling up. We're going to have this on the screen. So, so look at this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, firstborn, Not second born, not third born, first born of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and earth. Not some things, all things. Skip down, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And all things, in him, all things hold together. And it keeps going. Uh, he is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be, and preeminent, I would say, is also uh, a superlative as well. It just means first, or it means supreme. So, so, pre- so Jesus is the preeminent one. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through and reconcile to himself all things. So, so superlatives are piling up. We might casually... Uh, use superlatives to describe a football team, even though we may not really mean it. Maybe we do, but we're naive. But we, we use them casually. The Bible is not careless in its word choices, its word choices. Every word is purposeful. And, and the reason we see these superlatives piling up is because Paul wants to communicate something very specific and very true about Jesus. He's trying to tell us that Jesus is the supreme one. Jesus is the one who stands out against the rest. He is the one who is of the highest order. He's not like everything else. He is the one who is high and exalted. Do you want to know what the invisible God looks like? Well, verse 15 tells us that Jesus makes the invisible God visible. You and I might be the image of God. We're made in the image of God. We reflect God and his goodness and his grace and his glory and his creativity. We are made in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God, meaning he is God. Verse 15 goes on to say that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And now some false religions and, and certain uh, certain cults will take this to mean that Jesus came into being, that he was created just like you and I were created. But, but verse 15 is certainly not saying that. It's saying that Jesus's rank is above all created things. He is ranked higher than anything that has ever been or that will ever be. He's the supreme ruler of creation. Well, how can that be? Verse 16 tells us how. That can be true because Jesus himself created all things. Every single thing that you see, every single thing that you hear, every single thing that you experience, uh, every person you've met, every tree that you've passed by, every national park that exists, every star that is in the sky, Jesus himself created All of these things were created through him. Jesus was the active agent in creation. And not only that, all things were created by Jesus. So he's before all creation. But our passage also tells us that that Jesus is also the end of creation. Verse 16 says that creation was made through Jesus, but it was made for Jesus. He's the purpose of creation. Why does anything exist? Why do you exist? Why do I exist? Why do stars exist? Why do birds exist? Because of Jesus. They're created to display his glory, to sing his glory, to reflect his majesty, his worth, his beauty. Every single thing that was, that is, or that will be is for Jesus. And if that isn't enough, Jesus holds all things together. There's this old idea that God is like, the watchmaker who winds the watch, and then he sets it down and lets it just tick. He lets it operate according to its dials and according to its machinery. But he is, uh, he is distant from the actual, uh, actual ticking of the watch. Colossians 1 says that that's not the idea about Jesus and God and how they relate to their creation. No, rather, what we see is, is that Jesus creates... All things are created through him. They're created for him. But then he is actively involved in holding all things together. So a couple weeks ago, I moved a bunch of books from my car to my office, which is right over here. And I'm just lazy enough to where I didn't want to make multiple trips, even though I had too many books. So what I did was I stacked all of my books really high. And I did that classic move where I put my chin on the books And so I walked in very precarious with my chin pressed down. If there were for a second, if I wasn't pressing my chin down on these books, all of them would have fallen apart. It would have been a disaster. Um, All my books would have been out in the front there, but I pressed my chin on all the way, awkwardly waddling to my office. And that's the idea. Jesus is actively holding all things together. There's not a single moment where Jesus isn't holding the world together, he's not, where he's not holding you together, where he's not holding the molecules and atoms that exist in this world together. The stars in the sky hang in suspension because Jesus puts them there and holds them there. Every single thing is because of Jesus. Christians have been trying to make sense of the grandeur and the worth and the beauty and the divinity of Jesus for 2000 years. And here is the way that they've summed this up as recorded in the Nicene Creed. I think this is a great summary for what we're seeing in Colossians 1. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God. A very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The one who's at the center of our faith. True God of true God, light of light, very God of very God. That is who we're dealing with. One time I was flying from Los Angeles back home to Birmingham. And uh, I ended up sitting next to this lady. And uh, I struck up a conversation with her because I noticed she was reading Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. And I'd always wanted to read the book. I knew it was sort of an important book. And uh, so I asked her how it was. And it just started the most incredible conversation with the nicest lady. And um, she asked me what I did. I told her I was a pastor. We talked about church. We talked about life. Uh, in the church. I asked what she did, and she said, oh, I'm an actress. I said, Any, would, I, would I have seen you in anything? She said, oh, I, I don't think so. been in the background of a couple things, but, you know, no big deal. And I said, okay. And, um, but we just kept talking, and we, we talked about her family in Birmingham. And I think she was going home to care for a mom, and, and she was just so sweet. And so we talked for a couple hours, and as we were leaving, I realized I never introduced her and got her name, but I wanted to get her name just in case, you know. And um. And so I uh, said, hey, I'm Jackson. You mind telling me your name? She said, oh, my name's Octavia. I said, okay, well, it's nice to meet you, Octavia. And then I went home and almost immediately I started seeing trailers for the movie, The Help. And I was like, hey, I know that lady. I sat next to her on an airplane. And, and about a year later, Octavia Spencer won an Oscar for her role in The Help. And it occurred to me that this nice, Lady that I sat to next on the plane, she wasn't a mere actress. Everybody in Los Angeles is an actor or an actress. So, like, every waiter you meet is an actor or an actress. And they're really more waiter than they are actor or actress, you know? It, they're just everybody is an actor or an actress. So, it means nothing whenever you meet somebody and they say that. Well, Octavia Spencer, she actually was an actress. There was something great about her. She was better than I thought that she was. She was esteemed in her field. She was better than I thought she was. And that's kind of the idea here in this passage. That's what I want us to get today. No matter how highly you think of Jesus, no matter how highly you think of Jesus, you do not think highly enough of him. If you've been walking with the Lord for 50 years and the majority of that has been you cultivating a a right understanding and a view of Jesus and you have trained your mind to think God-honoring thoughts about him, you still do not think highly of Jesus. Your best thought about Jesus is not high enough. The problem is, is that every one of us is inclined to bring Jesus lower than he actually is. Jason mentioned this in his sermon last week, but but we are inclined to make little miniature versions of Jesus fashioned in our image. They're like he's like us. He's not the, the Jesus of Colossians 1. He sort of looks like Jackson, just a better version. He sort of looks like any of you, but just a better version. No wonder we struggle like we do. It's no wonder we shrink back when we're presented an opportunity to preach Christ. The Jesus we worship isn't majestic enough for us to actually proclaim him. No wonder we struggle with porn or with lying or with cheating. The Jesus we worship isn't the reason that all creation exists that Jesus isn't beautiful enough to command our affections and he isn't satisfying enough for us to place our desires and our hopes in him. Of course, we buy into the materialistic Atlanta narrative rather than the narrative that God is telling that he is redeeming a people to be his holy people, his his royal possessions, his people that are gonna glorify him and enjoy him forever because the Jesus we worship He's not the the one who created the world and everything in it. And he is not the one who is at the center of the universe. But God, through Paul, is bidding us now to reckon with the true Jesus. The true Jesus, the one who is better than we can imagine, the one who is better than our highest, most lofty, most glorious thought, the one who is supreme, the high king of heaven, the one who is outranking all things that ever were or that ever will be, the supreme one, the preeminent one. The true Jesus can motivate us to live boldly in whatever situation we find ourselves in because he is so glorious, outranking all other things in glory. The true Jesus can satisfy our deepest desires, keeping us from vice because he is the all-sufficient bread of heaven, the wellspring of life that fills us up and leaves us complete. The true Jesus can cause us to live for him and even be willing to die for him because he is what life is all about. All of life is in reference to him. He's the center of the universe and he's actively holding that universe together by the word of his power. If you want to keep going, if you want to get to the finish line, if you want to get to the top of the mountain, You have to know there's going to be so many things that are going to try to trip you up. They're going to try to discourage you. They're going to try to swerve you off into another path. False teaching, discouragement, passions of the flesh. It goes on and on and on. And what Paul is saying, if you want to get to the end, then you need to know who Jesus really is. You have to get this Jesus in your head. You have to get this in your heart and you have to live for this Jesus. Know him, love him and submit to him as the Lord of all. And if you do, you'll find out just how awesome he actually is. How worth living for he actually is. Know who Jesus is. He is better than we could ever imagine. He's better. Please know this, but also know that because Jesus is better, it's also true that the salvation that he works is more costly than anything we could ever imagine. That's the second point. Your salvation is more costly than you can ever imagine. And in order to see this point, I want us to, to go back to verses 21 and 22. So if you have your Bibles still open, look at verses 21 and 22 There's a little little phrase here that I think, if read in light of what we just considered, should absolutely alter our world. Verse 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I wants to focus on a little phrase. That phrase is in his body of flesh. In his body of flesh. Make no mistake. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 identifies Jesus as none other than God Himself. He's the second person of the Trinity. Every single thing that exists in the universe was created by him, for him, and through him. And he keeps it all going. He reigns supreme over every little thing in the universe, from the atom to the star. Every single thing he outranks. He is Lord of it all. And so he cries, mine over every single thing. No rival throne. Nothing comes close to his glory. That is who Jesus is. That Jesus, Colossians 1, and 23 tells us, has a body of flesh. He has a body. And that tells us that very light of very light stepped down into darkness. True God of true God, very God of very God became man. This is what Philippians 2 would call Jesus emptying himself. Jesus emptying himself doesn't mean that he rids himself of his divinity, of his being God. Rather, he empties himself by adding to himself humanity. So he's no mere man, he is the God man. And here's the crazy thing. Why did Jesus become a man? Why did very light of very light step into darkness? Because as verse 22 says, we were alienated, or sorry, verse 21, because we were alienated and hostile in mind and in need of reconciliation. Why did true God of true God become a man? Because of us because there was a problem with us and he wanted to fix it because of you and because of me, because by nature and by choice, we had separated ourselves from the God who made us for himself. We sacrificed our purpose and our relationship with God, such that we were enemies of God, far away from God with no hope, no future, and so God chose to do the most astounding thing that has ever happened or will ever happen to redeem us back to himself. God became man. Jesus, the eternal son, took on flesh and dwelt among us, Emmanuel. Now, if we take a step back and, and we try to think in theological categories for a second, Jesus emptying himself and taking on humanity by becoming a man this is what theologians will refer to as Christ humiliation. Christ humiliation. I want you to think for a second about a you. So a you. The side of the you that moves downward is the path of humiliation and suffering. And, and when, when Jesus was born, what Christians believe is that Jesus stepped into that you and went on the path of suffering and humiliation down towards the bottom of the U. He put himself on this U curve. Beginning with Jesus's incarnation, what we believe is that Jesus's entire life was a life of humiliation. His entire life, it was a life of suffering. Suffering that only grew and grew and intensified as it got closer to the bottom of the U where the cross waited for him. The Heidelberg Catechism it's this tool that we use to train Christians in what Christians believe. It says, what do you confess when you say that he, Jesus, suffered? During all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in his body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. And so to sum this up, what Christians believe is that every breath that Jesus breathed was a breath of humiliation. Every experience was an experience of suffering. And not only that, but this suffering would culminate or would, uh, would intensify and culminate in the cross of Christ where the author of life would hang on a curse tree for sinners like you and me. Jesus, no doubt, had happy moments. No doubt he had friends that he laughed with. But even those happy moments are qualified by the fact that Jesus was no mere man. He was the God man. Every moment of his life was a moment of suffering. One of my favorite movies, Cinderella Man. If you've seen Cinderella Man, it's a story of a boxer named James Braddock, and I wholeheartedly recommend it to you. Go watch it today. It's such a good movie. And, and I think it helps us to understand a little bit of what we see here in Colossians chapter one. So in this movie, Braddock, Jim, James Braddock, Jim Braddock, he was a boxer, professional boxer, and he was really good. He was on his way to becoming uh, one of the best of the best. And, and so he's living large. He was highly esteemed in his community. He's this Irish, New Jersey community that everybody loved him and rallied around him, and he was becoming a bigger and bigger deal. Bought a house, had a wife and kids, and and life was good. And then the depression hit, and it rocked the world, but that part of the world in particular. And and next thing you know, uh, Jim Braddock was having to take more fights more frequently under worse conditions in order to continue making money and continue providing for his family. And eventually he breaks his hand. But uh, he, he can't take time off. He has to continue fighting. And he ends up losing as a result. And then he loses some more. And then he loses some more. And eventually he gets in trouble because he's fighting hurt. And then he has boxing stripped from him altogether. This kind of introduces him going lower and lower and lower in the story and him becoming more and more humiliated. And it all kind of gets to this point where there's this brutal scene where this once proud man finally, after doing everything he possibly can to care for his family, goes to the government assistance office. And he's sitting in this line with all of his peers, all the people from his community. And he waits in line until he gets up to the teller. And the teller looks at him and says, Jim, Never thought I'd see you here. It's this gut-wrenching moment. Absolutely gut-wrenching. You just feel so terrible for this man as he's been brought low. But the question is, is why do we feel so intensely the, the fact that Jim Braddock was brought low? I mean, there's a bunch of other people in that line too, Right? Like all of his peers, all the people he lived around were in that line too. Why is it so devastating that he was in the line, that he was getting assistance? Well, because he was the great man. Because he was better than everyone else. And he had been brought low. See, it's one thing to be a jester, to be a clown. I mean, sometimes you just have to do what you have to do to survive, right? But it's an entirely different, different thing for a king to become a clown. And that's the idea that we see in Colossians 1. I don't want to push analogies too far here because there's nothing that can adequately measure the distance of the infinite becoming finite. The glorious God of all stooping to become a man. You know, Isaiah 53 says that there was nothing about Jesus' appearance, uh, Jesus appearance that we should desire him. So the God who created everything, all the beauty that you've ever seen, that God stepped into time and space as a man, and there was nothing in his appearance that would make people think, oh, I want to be around him. He was just an average, normal guy. There's actually studies uh, that, that say that Jesus was probably five foot three, an average five foot three Jewish man, nothing about his appearance would have been remarkable or special or that made any of us think, wow, what a guy. The creator of all was normal. The creator of all experienced what it felt like to be unremarkable can you imagine the all-knowing God of all having to learn obedience like Hebrews 5.8 says? Or can you imagine the all-sufficient sustainer of the universe getting tired and having to have a nap? Here's what a few of the church's great thinkers have said trying to summarize this idea. This is what Thomas Watson says, that man should be made in God's image is a wonder but that God should be made in man's image is a greater wonder, that the ancient of days would be born, that he who thunders in the heaven should cry in the cradle. Spurgeon said, infinite and yet infant, eternal and yet born of a woman, almighty and yet nursing at a woman's breast, supporting a universe and yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms, heir of all things, And yet the carpenter's despised son, or as Augustine said, man's maker was made man that bread might be hungry. The fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired from the journey that strength might be made weak, that life might die. Jesus, almighty God, true God of true God, very light of very light, This Jesus humbled himself, lived a life of suffering to the point of death, even death on a cross. But you know what happens once you go down that U-turn? You get to the cross at the bottom. You know what comes next? The ascent. Theologians speak of Christ's humiliation, and they speak of Christ's exaltation. So Jesus goes to the cross, yes. And he is humiliated at the cross. The son of God is hung on a cross for sinners slain. But then he is buried. And three days later, he raises to glorious life. The grave could not hold Jesus. And so as Philippians 2 would say, Because this Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, would take on humanity, the form of man, and he would submit to death, even death on a cross, the name that is above all names has been bestowed upon him. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on earth and under the earth to the praise of the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus went to the cross... And because he rose to glorious and everlasting life, Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is not only the preeminent one of creation, he's now the preeminent one of redemption. He is the firstborn of all, uh, uh, he is the firstborn from the dead, meaning that he's gonna take a bunch of other people from the dead and they're gonna live with him too. They're gonna be like him. Now Jesus can be identified as the head of the church. Now, as Colossians 1 teaches us, Jesus is going to reconcile all things to himself, things visible and invisible. He's going to make all the sad things come untrue. How? By the blood of his cross. And as verse 21 says again, he's gonna take those people who who are alienated, those enemies of God, estranged from God, He's going to take them and in his body of flesh, he is going to reconcile them to himself so that the relationship with God can be restored once and for all, fully and finally, so that you and me, we can have peace with God forever. We have a great salvation worked by our Lord, a costly salvation worked by our Lord. And here's how we end. Because of all of this, because Jesus is who he is, you can continue in the faith. You may have so much working against you right now. You may be tempted in so many ways to to give up the race, to give up the pursuit of the peak of the mountain, to just stop and cast it all in but because Jesus is who he is and because he has worked such a great salvation, you can keep going. Now, Jesus by his spirit is actively helping us, urging us along. And now we have this knowledge of who the true Jesus is. And what Paul concludes is, is that because of this, we can persevere when trials hit, when sorrows hit, when temptations hit, we can persevere. We can be stable. We can be steadfast. We can not shift from the hope of the gospel. We can get to the end. And so my last word of encouragement to you is fix your eyes on this Jesus. Don't be content to make your own little version of Jesus. Fix your eyes on this Jesus. He will satisfy you. He will help you. He is better. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can come to you in the matchless name of Jesus. Father, I pray that we would have some sense of the worth and the value of Jesus. And then as we consider him, we would be overwhelmed with his glory and his might. But as we do that, Lord, I pray that we would also be overwhelmed with your divine love that would send Jesus joyfully and gladly to become like us and to suffer, a suffering that we cannot understand so that we can have such a great salvation that we who were once far off can be brought near. Father, would that bless us? Would that overwhelm us and would that stir our affections for Jesus? so that we live for him and worship him all the days of our life. Would that work itself out when we go to work? Would it work itself out when we talk with our children or our spouses? Would it work itself out when we try to wake up in the morning and read the Bible or pray? Would you bless us with the knowledge of who Jesus is? And would that give us strength to keep going and keep going? Lord, we need you. Thank you for meeting us in our need. We ask that you would continue to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name.